I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. That's what the teacher said to me, and that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. Hello, this is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard. I'm embarking on my weekly talk about the books and arts section for the February 10th issue. I want to quickly go over uh, what we have. I, the lead piece is a splendid review by uh, John Lindsay's biographer, Vincent Canato, of Fred Siegel's dissection of what liberalism has done to the middle class. The book is, of course, vintage Siegel, but the review is, a, is, is really a splendid explanation of it, and I'm a great admirer of Canato, and I'm sure our readers will enjoy it. The science writer Ray Herbert has done a, uh, a very interesting piece on a book called The Gap, The Science of What Separates Us from Other Animals, which is a kind of exploration of to what degree can we uh, anthropomorphize our animal friends. And for those of us who love animals, it's an interesting essay, although he's a little skeptical of some of the claims of animal intelligence, but a good read. Mark Blitz, the political philosopher at Claremont McKenna, has done a fine essay on Moses Maimonides, the medieval Jewish scholar who he refers to as a second Moses, so I will leave to our Jewish scholars, or scholars of Judaism and others, whether that's a fair assessment or not. And then historian Alvin Felsenberg, who was the spokesman for the 9-11 Commission, has done an interesting piece on the debate within the uh, halls of Congress and the so-called intelligence community about intelligence in the wake of 9-11. Bruce Cole, who was chairman of the National Endowment of, for the Humanities, has done a, a great piece on a f wonderful book uh, called Saving Italy, the Race to Rescue a Nation's Treasures from the Nazis by Robert M. Edsel, which is very, very soon to be a major motion picture with no less than George Clooney about the American art historians who were dispatched to Europe right after the Second World War ended to rescue the art that the Nazis had looted. Um, I can't help but notice that in President Obama in his crack the other day about uh, the relative unimportance of art historians as opposed to money makers, this might be a, something of a corrective to, uh, to that. But uh, the, uh, uh, the centerpiece this week is an essay I call The Red Warbler. I think most of our readers uh, will be aware of the fact that Pete Seeger died this week at the age of 94. And who better to evaluate uh, Pete Seeger than the distinguished historian of American radicalism, Ronald Radosh, who not only is a famous Cold War historian, but is also a banjo player and a former student of Pete Seeger, no less, and knew Pete Seeger. And he takes a very interesting look at the life and legacy of Pete Seeger, and I'm delighted to have him here. Um, Ron, let me begin w with a confession. I'm famously uh, not an enthusiast of folk music, but let tell me where Pete Seeger stands in the history of American folk music. And I, I thank you for letting me write over the years on this topic occasionally, since you're not an enthusiast. Uh, he has, I would say, his importance 
is what he did for traditional American music. Uh, he was really compartmentalized. On one level, he believed authentic American music, which came from Scotch-Irish and the people who migrated to this country in the Appalachian, southern ballads of uh, African Americans under slavery and post-slavery that was authentic to them, black spirituals, black songs, uh, coal mining songs, songs that were indigenous and created by the people who lived in those communities. Even up to the 1950s, you could go to Kentucky. You could go to areas of West Virginia. Uh, you could go anywhere in Appalachia. And you would find banjo players in their 80s who had, whose parents and grandparents had grown up with this music, who didn't really imbibe in mass communications. They couldn't get television signals out there. And they would still make their own music. And people who, in the East Coast, particularly in the New York area, who grouped around Pete Seeger, learned from him, and then on their vacations, on their summer vacations from school, uh, took off in cars and went to these regions to try and see if they could find old traditional singers. Some of them became discovered and became famous legends in their own right. The most famous of these, discovered by some of Pete's protégés, was the guitar picker Doc Watson, who died a few years ago, one of the greatest guitar players, uh, blind from a very early age, uh, was self-sufficient, wired his own house, uh, fixed the windows and the roof in his house, totally blind. He was one of the greatest guitar players who ever lived. And he was not political. Uh, there's a great story, I can tell you about this, when three of these people who were protégés of Pete went in the late 50s on one of these car trips down south. And they went to North Carolina, where since the 1920s, a banjo player named Bascom Lamar Lunsford was living. And he had a yearly folk festival that he ran in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, I think he was the one who wrote Mountain Dew, one of the most famous songs that everybody seems to know. Uh, good old Mountain Dew. Uh, and uh, Lunsford... Uh, met them. When he introduced them to sing, they said, we, can we get in the festival? He said, sure, what do you play? And he introduced them as the three Jews from New York. Uh, but Lunsford, they went to see Lunsford, and they went to his house, and this really happened, evidently. Uh, they went to his house, and he, they said, we're from New York City, and we play folk music. And he said, you're not communists, are you? You're not friends of that vile red son of a bitch, Pete Seeger. And they said, yes, we know him. He said, of course you know him. I can't stand that commie. And he went on and on saying uh, how terrible Pete Seeger is. And then he opened his mail, and there was a big package there. He had given permission to Mo Ash's Folkways Records to publish his records from the 1920s on, a, on an LP. And he opened it up. This must be my record. And he turned it over. There were the liner notes for his record by Pete Seeger. And he turned purple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But <laughs> I guess I guess as a very young man, he he didn't he work with Alan Lomax. The yes, and by the way, Alan Lomax it recently came out was not was also a secret member of the Communist Party. Never admitted it, never acknowledged it. Unlike Seeger, but he too was a lifelong communist, uh, and everybody nobody really knew that. And Lomax, of course, was most famous for going down south with his father and discovering Lead Belly, right. and also Alan Lomax discovered Muddy Waters. Right. Uh, well, I think everybody, including me. I mean, I when I say 
when I say folk music is not much to my taste, I don't mean I'm hostile to it. It just isn't my cup of tea. But I can certainly appreciate what people like Lomax and Pete Seeger and others did. Um, what intrigues me, though, is that there was, of course, another side to Pete Seeger. And I was interested when he died, the statements from former President Clinton and President Obama and a whole raft of other people uh, really rapturous about Pete Seeger. Right. He was he was he embodied America. He was the best of the, uh, the 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 sort of American that we truly value in our culture and the custodian of our folkways and so on. Largely ignoring what Pete Seeger, at least when I was growing up and I'm a baby boomer, knew him for, which was his not just left wing ad activism and advocacy, but he really was a communist and apologist for Stalin and right. others. Well, let me tell you the, another story about 10, 12 years ago. Before the New York Sun article I wrote, I had still been in dialogue with Pete. And I had some exchanges with him li by letter and by phone. And he sent me a letter in which he said, this way after the fall of the Soviet Union, he said, you know, he was most known for his environmental crusade, and particularly the effort he put into cleaning up the Hudson River, which right. indeed in certain sections you can now swim in again. And he got big support, including for the Republicans in the state legislature and the Republican governor, George Pataki, worked with him and praised him when he was governor of New York. Uh, so Pete cleaned up the Hudson. He was, But he sent me a letter that the, in which he said, this is way after the death of the Soviet Union, that the reason there's such environmental hazards is because of capitalism and when there was a Soviet Union it had solved the environmental crisis and he enclosed in the letter pamphlets for me to read from the Communist Party USA <laughs> proving that socialism had cured all the problems of the environment when of course anybody in their right mind knows that the worst pollution the worst environmental hazards in the world were in all of Eastern Europe and the Soviet bloc countries, as they it is in China today, he didn't know that. He still believed socialism cures pollution, right. and capitalism causes it. And no, and well, I mean, as as you say, I mean, obviously, Pete Seeger did some good in the world, but he he did have this kind of willful ignorance about right. certain things, and. He really see it. It's it, one might almost say that he didn't love the Soviet Union so much as he really reviled his own country. Right. I mean, that as David Haydu said in the piece he wrote for Mother Jones, a surprise. And he Haydu told me that Pete Seeger hated that article. Uh, Mother Jones is a left wing magazine, and Haydu wrote that there's a tinge of anti-Americanism in all of P what. Pete Seeger says and thinks, and that is absolutely accurate. Right. He claimed to love the American people, but not America. Correct. America, to him, was the evil power. Right. And uh, you know, th there's a record. Uh, I think I said in one of my online uh, PJ Media columns, there's a, a record of a concert he gave in 1980 in Cambridge, Mass., appropriately, the People's <laughs> Republic of Cambridge, in which Pete says... Uh, well, if you give guns to the people, you don't know which way we'll turn those guns and where we'll point and use them. And the whole audience cheers in wild applause. He's saying, in effect, 
the U.S. is the enemy, and right. if we have guns, we're going to turn them against our oppressors at right. home. Uh, you know, anybody who says something like that, that's anti-Americanism. Yes. That's what he felt in his heart and soul, but clearly. He, but he did write to you uh, very late in the game, right. rather grudgingly <laughs> yeah. admitting that, well, maybe I was, maybe when I visited the Soviet Union, I should have asked to see the Gula. the less picturesque parts, the gulag. <laughs> and Except he didn't know about them, then he would say he may have heard something, so he never would have thought of asking right. that. Uh, but, you know, as I said, and he, then he sent me that ballad he wrote, which he said, I'm only singing for a few friends. He wrote it. He never performed that yes, publicly. Yes, yes. I don't even know what the tune is. Yes, after you <laughs> after you wrote that, I, I, I went on the Internet trying to find any no, version no of reco- it. No, there there's no reversion of it none. at all. Well, he leaves a... Uh, it, it's, it's obviously a subject that will be debated uh, forever, and he leaves a decidedly mixed legacy, but I'm... So delighted to have such a great essay uh, summarizing it all so well this week in the standard. And I thank you, Ron Radosh, for not only writing it, but coming here to talk about it. Great. Thank you so much, Phil.